This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Daniel Pink. You're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, I am Daniel Pink. I live here in Washington, D.C., and I'm a writer. Uh, I uh, write books about work and business that I hope, I hope, I hope uh, help people see their world a little more clearly and maybe learn one or two things to do their work a little bit better. And uh, I should say this is – you are the second person ever to make the second uh, second appearance on the podcast. We were super excited um, way Who's back when first? you arrived uh, Les McEwen, actually, who wrote um, oh, okay. predict- uh, Predictable Success and uh, The sure. Synergist. So, All right. Well, I'm but, glad to be in that elite company. There, there you go. Perfect. And and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Drive. I'm sure listeners have heard me gloat about it in multiple uh, podcasts. But I'm also a huge fan of the newest book, To Sell as Human, which has only been out recently. And I there's a, a wonderful trend I noticed throughout kind of all of your books. I can kind of see how each prior one influence a new one. But here we are now. We've talked about motivation, and now we're talking about the science of, of influence. And, and that science has shown us some things, and the game has changed to some extent. And we're all in sales now. Why, why is it, Dan, that we are all in sales now? Well, I mean, I think that's, a, that's really at the heart of this, this new book, To Sell as Human. And what the, here in the United States, what the d- data show are, is that one in nine people in the workforce are in sales. That is, their job is to get other people to buy stuff. So they're selling aircraft parts. They're selling uh, uh, beverages to the restaurant industry. They're selling real estate. Uh, but I think what's equally interesting, if not more interesting, is what's happening to those other eight and nine, the people who aren't formally in sales. Uh, they're in sales, too. They're, in, they're not making the cash register ring, but a lot of what they do on the job these days is about persuading, influencing, convincing other people to make an exchange, to give up something they have in exchange for what we have. Um, so it's things like um, getting your teammates to come along on your project rather than another project. It is a boss trying to convince her employee to do things in a different way. It is a mom or a dad trying to get their teenage daughter to clean up the room. And we have data showing that people are spending about 40% of their time on the job in this thing that I call non-sale selling, which is selling where the cash register doesn't ring, but where there is an exchange, where there is this kind of selling process, although what's being exchanged is not denominated in dollars, it's denominated in time, effort, tension, commitment, energy, and so forth. Yes, and and, uh, we at at Leader Lab, we're trying to always find the new research on leadership innovation and strategy. And this is one that rung true to me when you think about one of the fundamental cores uh, of leadership, one of the fundamental core attributes is the idea of influencing people, usually toward toward some level of change. And so um, I think leaders sort of already knew for a long time that they're uh, in sales, in essence. Um, Absolutely. And I think what's interesting, I mean, it's it's interesting because one of the ways that I sort of got at this question because I came into the question with a hunch. I came, in, I, I came into the, the process with a hunch that those eight out of nine were also in sales. And so one way to validate the hunch was to – I did some survey research, and we went onto the field and uh, surveyed a pretty good sample of 7,000 adult full-time workers to try to – and one of the questions that we asked them was, what percentage of your time at work do you spend convincing, you know, persuading people to give up something they have in exchange for what you have? And what we found is that the average – 
percentage was 40%. So people on average are spending 40% of their time doing this. But what's interesting is that the way that that was distributed was there are very few people who actually gave us 40. There were a lot of people who gave us around 15 and a lot of people who gave us around 75. And I think that those people around 75 were um, – were really the leaders in the organization because that's what they do. And if you go even anecdotally and ask people, how much time do you spend doing this? You routinely get answers of 70, 80, 90% because that's what it is at some level to lead. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I I hate to kind of quote the John Maxwell maxim about leadership is influence, but there's a lot more to it than that. But one of the primary things is that, and, and, uh, you know, into sales human, you talk about how we're all in sales, especially leaders, but you also um, talk in the very beginning about how the the nature and the availability of information has really changed how people are influenced and how people are are sold to talk, talk a bit about how that information um, gap is closing and changing the natures of influence. Well, it's a big it's a big point because when we think about sales, and I and, and I'm kind of you know I'm I'm talking I, I I like I like sort of embracing the word sales here because I do think that we are selling and and sometimes to dress it up in other kinds of words I think takes away from that and I and we tend not to be think very much very highly of selling we think of it as sleazy and cheesy and slimy and uh, my view is that that opinion of sales is very outdated, and it goes exactly, David, to your point about information. That is, a lot of what we know about sales comes from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. When the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. No question about it. Um, But that's not so true anymore. I mean, just think about cars. 20 years ago, if you went into a Chevy dealer, the Chevy dealer knew a lot more about cars than you ever could. Today, you go into a Chevy dealer, you can know as much as that dealer about cars, about that particular make and model. And and so uh, a world of information asymmetry where the seller has a lot more information than the buyer, the buyer has to be aware. But in a world of information parity, when buyers have lots of choices, ample information, and a way to talk back, it's seller beware. Uh, You can't take the low road. You can take the low road. You're not going to last on it for very long. You're going to get found out. And so... Selling in a world of buyer beware versus selling in a world of where we're now of seller beware are two entirely different enterprises. They're not just you know a nuance of difference between the two. To me, I think they're fundamentally different uh, undertakings. And so, what I set out to do in this book is say if this is right, or you know if it's more right than wrong, how do you get better at selling and non-sales selling in a world where the rules have flipped upside down? Yeah, and I and I love uh, I, it's a great point about uh, especially when you began about how sales has kind of gotten a bad rap. You know, I I cut my teeth in sales, and now I, I work my day job is as a professor, which is ironic because I feel like I'm selling every single day as to why this information. Of course you are. Yeah. Um, so it is it is uh, sales in that regard, and you laid out as this this information asymmetry is gradually becoming more uh, symmetrical, and as that nature of sales is changing, you laid out three very research based attributes of how to sell in this sort of new world: attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Can you talk a little bit about those um, three elements and how they contribute to a better sale? Well, yeah, these are the new ABCs uh, as a kind of a hat tip to the old ABCs of ABC, A always B, B, C closing, always be closing, that kind of steamroller approach, which is completely ineffective. And I, I mean, largely ineffective. Now, maybe not completely ineffective in all circumstances, but doesn't work very well. So the, the new ABCs are A, attunement, B, buoyancy, C, clarity. So attunement is perspective taking. 
can you take someone else's perspective? And this is extraordinarily important for leaders. That is, uh, especially one dimension of, of, of attunement. Um, but I'll come back to that in a second. So just to give you the overview here. So attunement is perspective taking. You have to be able to understand where someone else is coming from if you're hoping to move them, uh, change their behavior, uh, find common ground, uh, be a leader with any degree of effectiveness. You have to be able to see things from their perspective. That's attunement, B, buoyancy. One of the things about sales, whether you're pitching ideas in a meeting or, or whether you're selling Winnebago's in Indiana, is that you face rejection all the time. One of the characters in this book, To Sell as Human, is a guy named Norman Hall, who is a fuller brush man selling fuller brushes in San Francisco. And he said the hardest part about being in sales is that every day you look out and you bathe into, this is his lovely phrase, an ocean of rejection, an ocean of rejection. So buoyancy is how you remain afloat on that ocean of rejection. And the science gives us some clues about what to do before an encounter, how to uh, uh, comport ourselves during an encounter. Um, some very interesting research showing that how one explains rejection has a huge has a huge role in one's resiliency and buoyancy. And then finally, we've got A, attunement, B, buoyancy, C, clarity. Uh, clarity is really important because, again, for the information that you were mentioning earlier, we live in a world of Washington information. And so having merely having access to information doesn't confer any kind of advantage because we all have access to information. Uh, what matters more is being able to synthesize that information, curate that information, distill that information. Uh, take this wealthier of information that seems so murky and out of control and make sense of it. Uh, frame it in ways that help people understand and clarify what their choices are. Uh, there's also, inside of clarity, a move from uh, problem solving as a core capability to problem finding. Uh, what matters more is identifying problems people don't realize that they have. So these are the essentially the ways, the three ways to be, attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. And they in some ways form the foundation for how to effectively move others in this changed terrain. Awesome. Yeah, and, and the new ABCs, we won't, uh, we, we won't give too much of a hat tip to the old one because, I, as I said, I cut my teeth in sales and I have watched the opening to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross far too often, uh, and I'd much rather... It was a great movie. Movies. Everybody interested in sales should, should watch that movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and this, there's a scene with Alec Baldwin um, that's actually not in the play on which the movie is adapted. Uh, that's actually just an epic scene in the cinema of sales. Everybody, everybody should watch it. But it's a very old school and now very outdated approach to uh, persuading, moving, influencing, selling others. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, as I said, I've, I've seen it far too often. I'd much rather live in a world um, where attunement, buoyancy, and clarity uh, are the dominant norms, and not uh, first prize is a set of uh, or second prize is a set of steak knives, and third prize is your fire. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you talked a little bit about how attunement is the uh, especially uh, important of those ABCs for leaders. Can, you, can we explore that a bit more? About Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, um, I, I think, one of the most um, important findings in the research for, for leaders, for the folks who are listening to your program, uh, is, uh, has to do with attunement. And what it shows basically is this. Um, again, going back, attunement is how do you take someone's perspective. And what the research says very clearly is, an inverse relationship between power and perspective taking. That is, the more power somebody has, the less adept they are at taking other people's perspective. And the less power they have, the more adept they are at taking other people's perspective. So what does that mean? Uh, in experimental settings, when they test, there's a common test of perspective taking, 
has to do with uh, drawing an E on your forehead. And when people are uh, are made to feel powerful, they become um, less likely to take someone else's perspective. Uh, when people are made to feel less powerful, they're more likely to take another person's perspective. If you look at status, high-status people are worse perspective takers than low-status people, which makes some sense because if you're low-status, either in an organization or you know, in a society, um, you're not the one making the rules. The high-status people are making the rules. So you better understand where they're coming from or you're going to get clobbered. So, um, so, but this has huge implications for leaders because one of the problems with leaders is that they get anchored too much in their own point of view. They don't take the perspective of other people, and in part because they feel powerful. They're in positions of actual high status. They have feelings of power. And the research, again, is very, very clear that that distorts people's perspective. It, it actually diminishes people's perspective-taking capabilities. So one thing, again, just to get tactical here for a moment, one thing that a leader can do to avoid this problem is when she goes into an encounter, um, actually consciously think about how much power you don't have. So let's say that you're trying to convince an employee to do something different or do it in a different way. If you're a boss, you can go in there and essentially say, hey, this is the way you do it. I'm the boss. Let's get going. Or you could threaten to punish them for not doing it. You could try to bribe them for doing it. Um, but what you're better off doing is trying as much as you can to see things from that employee's perspective. And one way to do that is to go into an encounter and say, now let's say, I'll say, God forbid, I'm the boss and, and there's a um, – and the employee's name is uh, Maria, and I can go into, if I go into the encounter saying, I'm the boss, Maria does what I say, I'm not going to see Maria's perspective very well. But if I go into this encounter and say, you know what, maybe, maybe we need Maria more than Maria needs this company. Maybe I need Maria as a leader more than, than, than Maria needs me as a boss. And so if you consciously try to, to think about ways you're not that powerful, you actually become more adept at seeing the perspective of another person. Now, when you see a perspective as another, when you see things from another person's perspective, you can, it's easier to find common ground. You can, you can, um, um, and you feel, feel, get a sense of, okay, what are their interests? What are they looking for? And try to satisfy those. So for leaders who get anchored too much in their own perspective, in some ways, you're internally diminishing your feeling of, of power can actually enhance your effectiveness because it enhances your perspective taking skills. Yeah, and I, and I love that uh, reminder about how how powerless we might be in a situation. It's sort of the you know the, the modern updated version of memento mori in, in ancient Rome. They used to say to, to the Caesars and the war heroes, "Remember, you're mortal." Now it's sort of memento powerlessness, right? Remember when you walk right, in a right, right, or you know, or you know, remember, you know, remember, um, right, remember that you're not as powerful as you might think you are, given your given your status. And that's not meant to diminish anybody. That's not meant to say, you know, you're not valuable. What it's meant to do is it's kind of a reality check, but that reality check actually makes you more effective. So there are some kind of really interesting counterintuitive findings that's really interesting paradoxes. But the paradox here is that in some ways the best way to en enhance your power is to reduce it. Yeah, no, it makes it. It's counterintuitive, but when you think it through, it makes perfect sense. And, when you and unpack it, it actually makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's and it's a sense it's a sense making that I certainly need because I when I was reading um, the book I was actually I was on an airplane reading the entire book I had a three hour flight and and read the whole thing the first time through on that flight and I remember putting the book down and drawing an E on my forehead and then was shocked uh, I drew it backwards really 
I did. I, I felt awful. I drew it. I was like, okay, it makes perfect sense. And I looked back down at the book and went, no, wait, that was the wrong way. Wow. Um, fortunately, yeah, I only drew it with my finger. It, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Well, you know, you, you have, um, you can just get an erase. You know, I wouldn't use a permanent marker, but erasable markers work fine. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, now, I, I want to uh, talk about something that I'm particularly sort of have a, a fellow morbid interest in. I've been um, I've been following your work personally since I would love to say since Free Agent Nation, but Whole New Mind was my first exposure. Then went back to Free Agent Nation, and I see this common thread throughout where you see sort of the influence of Free Agent on Whole New Mind, you see the influence of Whole New Mind on Drive, even um, on of Drive on to sell as human. But one thing I've been waiting for, um, yeah. having know, knowing you and knowing your work, one thing I've been waiting to find its way into a book is emotionally intelligent signage. Uh, I know we talked about it the last time you were here, um, and you finally got it included, particularly with a really intriguing study um, in regards to emotionally intelligent signage in hospitals. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. well, emotionally intelligent signage for the 99.9% uh, the .9 of your listeners who have no idea what we're talking about is, uh, <laughs> is a, sort of a, uh, an idea that I've had a, a few years ago. I, 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 you know, I, I, I tend to be really interested in signs and sign, for whatever peculiar reasons. And signs um, typically have a certain function. They, they provide, they, they set out the rules. Uh, they also provide wayfinding. But let's think about signs setting out rules. And I always thought that uh, signs were not emotionally intelligent enough. That that signs, if you had signs that actually either encouraged empathy on the part of the viewers or actually displayed empathy with the people who are viewing them. It could actually change people's behavior and change the experience of being in a space. And I, I got to this idea where my family and I, I live in Washington, D.C., my family and I went to New York, and we went to a museum. And, you know, I've got three kids, and we go to the museum, and we don't have a lot of time. And, you know, we're there for like 20 minutes, and suddenly everybody's hungry. And so we have to take a stop. We have to stop and go to the cafeteria. It's a wasting precious minutes that we don't have because everybody's freaking hungry. And um, I got up there, and there was this huge line in the cafeteria. And, and I'm thinking, oh, man, we're going to totally waste the day. And sitting there, um, that, I, that I noticed when I looked around was a sign that said, don't worry, this line moves really fast. Um, and it turned out that the way that the line was configured, the way the restaurant and this, re this museum was configured, the line was misleadingly long. It actually did move really fast. But that sign basically displayed empathy with me. It said, I understand where you're coming from. I understand you're frustrated to be in this line, but don't worry, it's not going to be as bad as you think. And it changed my experience of being in that space. So ever since then, I've been collecting examples of emotionally intelligent signage, that is, signage that um, you know, has a role in actually persuading us uh, by tapping, in many ways, the better angel of our natures. So on to the study of hospitals. So the study was done by two, by David Hoffman at UNC, University of North Carolina, and then also by Adam Grant, who is now at um, uh, Wharton School of Penn, and what they did was this. They were trying to solve the very vexing problem of hand washing inside of hospitals. Hospital-acquired infections are cost us so much money and so much lives, so many lives, and the best way to uh, correct the problem is by having people wash their hands. So Grant and Hoffman set up this experiment to see if they could use signs and messaging to get more doctors to wash their hands. So what they did was they tested out three different kinds of signs that they posted around this one hospital, or actually ended up doing two studies, posted around two different hospitals. And one sign said, hand washing prevents you from catching diseases. It's an appeal to the doctors and their self-interest. Another one, hand washing prevents patients from catching diseases. 
And then the third one was really the control uh, condition, but all ended up being a pretty nifty marketing slogan. It said, gel in, wash out. Gel in, wash out. So what they did is they measured how much soap was used over the next few weeks of the study, how many people actually washed their hands uh, in response to these various kinds of signs, one of which, again, said, Hand-washing prevents you from catching diseases. The second said hand-washing prevents patients from catching diseases. The third one said gel in, wash out. And it turned out that two of the signs had pretty much no effect. And one of the signs had as pretty much as large of an effect as any intervention has ever had. And to many people's surprise, it was not gel in, wash out, the groovy slogan. It was not hand-washing prevents you from catching diseases and appeals to self-interest. It was hand-washing prevents patients from catching diseases. It was an appeal to purpose. It was an appeal to saying, hey, remember why you're here. Remember the point of the exercise. Remember why you became a physician or a nurse or uh, a healthcare worker. And there's a lot of really interesting evidence out there that we can persuade people by actually making an appeal to purpose rather than simply self-interest. No, absolutely. And it even ties into that uh, level of attunement and, and reminding people that it's not just about you, it's also about how you interact and serve others. Um, particularly, absolutely. My, my wife is a physician, and so I, this one really rang true to me on, on perspective. It's very easy to take just what you're doing and, and forget and get so lost in everything that you sort of forget. It's ultimately, this organization exists to serve those people. There's, so, there's another really good uh, study of in, in a physician setting that I think is really remarkable. It's a study done of Israeli radiologists. And essentially what they did is they gave radiologists the computer image of whatever, a, a, bone, a scan of a potentially broken bone or internal organ or whatever. And in some of the cases, they accompanied that scan with a photograph of the patient. And in other cases, they did it. And it turned out that when the photograph of the patient accompanied the scan that the doctor was reading, that the doctors spent more time on it. Perhaps that's not that surprising. But they also, in radiology, they also ended up finding far more incidental findings. Incidental finding is when uh, I go in for an X-ray to see if I broke my, my butt, my, my forearm, and they check that out, but they say, hey, wait a second, Dan, you might have a little, it looks like there's a little cyst down near your elbow. I wonder what that is. So it's they're finding something they weren't looking for, which is how Fortunately, a lot of terrible things get discovered. And so uh, it turned out that that small act of accompanying the scan with a photograph of the patient improved doctors' abilities to do their job. Absolutely. And it, it all sort of tunes back to that perspective, that empathy idea. If you want to be a better doctor, better leader, or better salesperson, it, it all sort of ties into that idea. Can you take on the other's perspective and, and get that it's in the end it's about serving them. Real quick, I want to shift. The, the book is fantastic, but I'm curious. I know you obviously did a lot of research last year um, in, in writing the book, but what are you reading right now? Uh, let's see. What am I reading right now? Uh, I guess the last book that I uh, finished uh, a couple weeks ago was a really good book by Blaine Harden called Escape from Camp 14 about North Korea. Uh, somebody who, some guy who was born in a North Korean prison camp, grew up there, and then managed to escape. Uh, a really, really uh, riveting, uh, really, really riveting read, and um, makes you just makes you realize just you know how lucky we have it to be Americans and how messed up that that world is, but also how human beings can flourish in really brutal, horrific settings. Hmm. Hmm. 
no, interesting. I, I tell I tell my students regularly that they have uh, by by being where they are, they've already won the birth lottery. You know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's I tell my own kids that it's like you know you 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 are not allowed to complain that something isn't fair. What's what's yeah. uh, what's, uh, what's 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 uh, you want to talk about unfairness? Uh, you got to be born in the United States. Um, you got to be, as I did, you got to be born to two parents who loved each other. You got to be born to two parents who had a college education. And you got to be born in a world where, in a condition where you never had to, um, um, uh, you know, worry about food or, or, or housing or anything like that. And, again, that's not, I don't mean that in – it sounds a little – Golden, but that's not what I mean at all. It's basically you should cherish that. I I am very lucky. They are very lucky too. I don't. I personally, I don't have any claims on fairness. Uh, I was born in Columbus, Ohio, to two parents, both of whom had college educations. I was born in the United States. I mean, good God, you know, I you know, I, you know, it's it's like the old line, you know, I I was born on third base, but I didn't hit a triple. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and it, and it ties back. I mean, ironically, it ties back to everything that we've been talking about today, and that level of perspective taking, uh, and considering that other person, drawing the E properly on your uh, forehead, so that the other person can can have that perspective, and it makes for uh, it, it makes for better humans, it makes for better leaders, and it makes for better salespeople. Well, I want to encourage our readers to check out To Sell as Human. It is uh, the next in Dan Pink's ever-expanding library of, of awesome books that tell, uh, that use research-based principles to provide some counterintuitive insights, some surprising truths, this time about moving others. If you want to find out why we're all in sales now, like it or not, or if you want to find out why you need to like it, um, check out To Sell as Human. <laughs> Dan, Dan, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Always a pleasure. I look forward to doing this for the third time on some other book. You can, you can be the first person to do three times. How's that? All right. Yeah, just don't tell that other dude. <laughs>